It's the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Mark. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to church, y'all. It's so good to be with you. If we haven't met, um, my name is Ashley. I'm the priest and pastor here at Christ the King, and um, this is our second Sunday of Advent. So we are, um, you know, speeding right through everywhere else in the world towards Christmas, you know, just barreling down. That's how it feels. The days are ticking by, and um, the beauty of the worship and the liturgy is that we're called and invited into a space like this and reminded to slow down and to try to enter into a different time and a different way of keeping time and to remember what it's all about and to realign our hearts and our minds. And so that's what we're going to do this morning, um, both through the reading of the word and also through uh, thinking together about the sacraments, which is what we've um, committed this next few weeks to doing here at Christ the King. We've spent the last number of weeks throughout the fall, actually started in October, going through a kind of series on what it means for us to be a three streams church, what it means for us to be Christians who are trying to figure out how to follow Jesus, and specifically how to pay attention to both the scriptures and the Holy Spirit, and the sacrament. And like be intentionally and purposefully formed by those things in our commitment to following Jesus. What does it actually mean or look like to do that? And so during Advent, the call is for us to think together about what it means to be strengthened by the sacraments. What role do they play in our life with Jesus? Why do they matter? Are they important? And so we're going to be doing that today and uh, in the weeks ahead as we move towards Christmas in light of the season, thinking together about how Advent and the sacraments maybe work uh, together. Before we do, I want to pray and just ask the Lord to be here with us as we think towards him. Lord, we love you, and we ask you now, Holy Spirit, for your grace, the gift, Lord, of being able to set our minds on you. Catch us up, Holy Spirit, into the places, the heavenly places where Jesus is. Whatever it means, Lord, those thin places where heaven and earth meet, And all that separates us, Lord, is somehow thinned out. We ask you, Lord, for exactly that kind of space this morning. Just to be here with you and to tend to holy things. Come, Lord Jesus. We look for you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
We said last week um, that Advent is a call uh, to consider the coming of Jesus at his birth, yes, but also the return of Jesus, his second coming. So when we're thinking together about Advent, about coming, the coming of God, we're actually thinking about not just one, um, not just his birth, but his return, and maybe more holistically, the fact that like what is true of God is that God comes, that's part of who he is. What it means to follow him is to expect that this is a God who is coming to us. Specifically during Advent, we talked about this a bit last week, one of the things I'm always struck by is the reminder that when we think about this God who is coming, we're called to reflect on how God comes. And one of the things that we note that I think is interesting about both the birth of Jesus and his return is that Advent is a sort of unapologetically embodied season. And our God, an unapologetically embodied God. That when Jesus comes at his birth as a baby, he has a body. And when he returns to the church, he is coming again in his body. And that matters because it's meant to remind us, I think, that our faith and spirituality has at its center an embodied and a very physical God. John 1 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's a verse that I suspect many of us in this room know. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the incarnation. God becomes human and he comes to us. God's making his movement towards the world, towards increased humanity, taking on flesh. So my question to you then is, why when we think about spirituality, and why so much of the time when we think about our faith, does it seem to me that our instinct is somehow in the reverse? That the more spiritual we become, the more faithful we become, that somehow, in some way, maybe the less human we become. That to become increasingly spiritual or increasingly like Jesus is to become somehow less and less embodied. You know? We think purer thoughts. Our theology gets better. But does our humanness, our living, get better? The goal of our faith, y'all, cannot be simply to know more and more of who God is And then, therefore, somehow, through my knowing, become more and more the person Jesus has called me to be. Because John says, the word became flesh. In other words, the logos was moving towards humanity, not the other way around. The word does not get liberated from flesh. It takes it on, becomes it. Humans going toward God and becoming less human somehow seems to be the sort of like implicit assumption that we have about our faith. And when I look at the story of Jesus and his life, what I see is a God who feels apparently somehow utterly, fiercely, and totally committed to that which is made, that which is human. So how do we get it so wrong most of the time? It's like our bodies are standing in the way of our faith somehow. 
or all of this living is standing in the way of our faith somehow. If we could just like overcome those things, then we would be more and more like Jesus. And that's just not the story of Christmas. His coming, I think, is meant to be an affirmation of our bodies, of our humanity, and of the world that he loves so much. Which is why I think it's such a beautiful time to think together about sacraments. We talked about this last week. This is the gift of sacraments. They're meant to put something tangible and concrete, a created thing, in our hands and teach us, help us to practice week after week to look for God there and that which is created, that which is so seemingly so ordinary. Could God be here? What does it mean for this to be holy? What God wants, I think, in other words, is integration. And I've been thinking about that a lot this past week um, because I think one of the biggest barriers that people have when it comes to faith and to an experience of Jesus is how seemingly disintegrated it all feels. That like we come into spaces and we talk about God and we think about God, but that that God space can be so disintegrated or separated or distinct from like the rest of our living somehow. And that our thinking about God and our worship of God and all of that happens in very specific spaces and that's where God's allowed to be and that's where we can feel like comfortable being with God, but then all of the other spaces, you know, is just the rest of life. And I wonder if one of the invitations of Christmas is to reflect on the fact that God seems like fiercely committed to integration, to the bringing together of all of these spaces in our lives, of our humanity and our spirituality, the part of us that is flesh and the part of us that is made in the likeness of God. That he wants to bring heaven and earth maybe together, not to separate them out increasingly. I think it's one of the really hard things, one of the biggest challenges maybe that people have with the church is that God seems so confined, so compartmentalized to these very specific parts of our life and the rest of it maybe just he's not involved in or not a part of. And I wonder if you feel this in your life. Can I tell you that one of the greatest joys and gifts of my life has been having friends that I could seamlessly pray with for 45 minutes to an hour and then watch SNL? <laughs> what a gift. That it just doesn't feel that weird. Do you know what I mean? To in the course of a conversation be talking about whatever it is that we talk about and then somebody very casually and comfortably talk about something that they are reflecting on because they felt prompted by the Spirit to do so. Or someone they're praying for. Or something they're going through. Those people are a rare gift. Because what you experience in them is a truly integrated humanity. A person who is very comfortable being both in holy places, conscious and awake to God, and also being absolutely and fully that same person everywhere else they are, wherever they are, whatever they're doing. I think the world wants more people like that. I think we all want to be those people. So guess what I'm saying to you is that what if Christmas was an invitation for us to reflect on the disintegration and be reminded that actually God does not like it that way. 
that there's something about reverence. You know, I don't dress like this on Tuesday, actually, and that's fine. We come in here to spaces like this and we're doing a specific thing. That's good and right. It's as it should be. But if what we're doing in here and the person I am dressed in this stole or doing these things is radically disconnected from the person I am on Tuesday, now that's a different thing. That's a problem. We have a hope in this season that it is actually possible for heaven and earth to come together into a single space, for you to be fully, totally yourself and someone who is following Jesus and committed to him, that that is not only possible, it is God's great gift. It's why he came to teach us how to bring it all together. The sacraments are meant to be a reminder to us that God is in all of our spaces. In the body of Jesus, God and humanity came together. In the bread and the wine, that same body, made of that which is material and spirit, also comes together. And one day, heaven and earth are also going to come together. And righteousness, Peter says, will finally be at home. So in the sacraments, this, baptism, these things, these gifts of the church, here's what we're doing. We are both looking backwards at something that's already happened. In, at this table and in these sacraments, through the liturgy, we recall the death of Jesus, the crucifixion, and his resurrection. We remember the cross. But what I felt impressed on in my heart, even as I was reading through these texts, is not just to remember and look back, but also the fact, y'all, that we are foreshadowing something. That at this table, the past, what has happened, the cross, and the future that God has in store for us, where heaven and earth come together, all of that meets at this table. It's what N.T. Wright calls sacramental time. I look back at what God has done, and I look forward to that which God has promised, and they meet together at this table. God, who he is, divinity, immortality, comes together with humanity, with mortality and finitude. Material created stuff and spiritual immaterial stuff, all of it meets together at this table. And the reason that I'm making such a thing of this is to underline for you that I think the goal and the hope is that we would be increasingly integrated people. That we would be practiced at looking for God in the everyday stuff of life. Sacramental time, sacramental practices. I think sacraments are for Advent, maybe especially. Sacraments are for waiting people. They're for the life that happens in between the comings of God. Jesus comes at his birth, and he will come again at his return. But in the middle of this, we're looking for him to come, and the way he comes is through people and things in our life. And so we're to practice watching and waiting. When we get home, when Jesus comes and we have a new heavens and a new earth, we won't have to look for him anymore. We won't have to look for him in the wine, you know? I won't have to look for him in the wafer because I'll be drinking it with him and he will be there. But for now, we have to stay awake. We have to keep watch. We have to look for God. Augustine referred to the sacraments as visible signs of an invisible grace. 
And so the question that I have for you today is what is the invisible grace? What is it that we are hoping for or watching for? Are we clear about that? So there's a reason that we're to called to take the wafer and the wine, to eat. It's a visible thing. It's helping us to see something. The question for us is, what is it helping us see? What's the invisible bit? I love the way that Mark begins his gospel. Mark says this. He says, this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is how the gospel begins, Mark is saying. And the way the gospel begins, according to Mark, is with a quote from Isaiah 40, which we also read this morning. But you have to know what Isaiah 40 is about in order for it to be good news or the beginning of good news. Mark, of course, does know what Isaiah 40 is about, which is why he can say this is where the gospel begins, this is where it starts. Isaiah 40 is marking a shift in the book of Isaiah, in the prophecy of Isaiah, an important one. It's an announcement of the end of the exile. Isaiah is a big book, and the first half of it is devoted to the coming of exile, the experience of exile, and then we get to chapter 40, and there is an important pivot, a shift. Now the exile is over, and Isaiah is called to prophesy and announce the end of it, the fact that God is coming and Israel gets to go home after having spent 70 years in exile. And it goes like this. Comfort, O oh comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid. A voice cries out, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And it's those words. In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, and in the desert make a highway for our God that we have to catch. This was an announcement that the end of exile was coming, but it had not yet happened. So these herald of good tidings are meant to go and tell all the people of Israel, hey, it's over, we get to go home. But that announcement was going to be made to people who were currently still in exile, and in the language of the prophecy, who were still in the wilderness, who were still in the woods. And so they had to prepare for this coming that they could not yet see. Similarly, then, when you get to the Gospels, and John the Baptist has to announce the coming of Jesus, he very purposely and intentionally picks up Isaiah 40, similarly to announce the coming of Jesus, who is on the way but not yet here. And so John says, hey, he's coming. We have to prepare. We have to get ready. Here's the thing that I've found myself thinking about quite a lot. Um, we're, we're John Deere people here. We understand the analogy, right? If you are going to be in the woods and you are going to have to make a road, you're going to need some tools to do that. Yes? You're going to put a road in the woods. You've got to have a tractor and some other stuff to make sure that you can tear up what needs to be torn up, that you can level what needs to be made level. There's work to be done in this in-between. We have to get ready. Similarly, John the Baptist is going to say, hey, Jesus is coming. There's work to be done. If God's going to make his way to you, then the question you need to be asking yourself is, is his way obstructed? Can he find you? Can he get to you? 
when he comes? Are you doing the work of tearing up what needs to be torn up? Are you leveling the things that need to be leveled? Are you getting ready for him to come? And so I've been struck by that because I think there are two things maybe to reflect on. One is that's what Advent, of course, is about. It's a season of preparation. This is our John Deere time, in other words. We're meant to be like making roads in the woods, spiritually speaking. And I don't think just spiritually speaking, this is a season where for weeks I'm meant to ask myself and reflect on, you know, if I believe that God is like coming into my life, if he's going to come, is his way obstructed? Can he get to me? What might be standing in the way? What needs to be torn up? What needs to be leveled? And that is in some ways a really practical question. That's why we pray during Advent. The invitation is to come into spaces where you can be purposeful and intentional, reflect. What is the state of your soul? What might stand in Jesus' way? But I also want to put this question in front of you. I think the way um, that we prepare is largely informed by who it is we believe is coming towards us. Who you are preparing for determines how you prepare. In other words, if the health inspector or the auditor is coming, you are going to prepare for that one way. If someone you love is coming, you prepare for that a different way. Yes? I think so. Who do we believe is coming to us? What is the invisible grace that we're looking for in these sacraments? What is it all about? Prepare the way of the Lord. God is coming. When Isaiah made that announcement to the people of Israel, he didn't have to wonder if they knew what that meant. Israel knew what it meant to go home. My question for the church sometimes today is, do we? Do we know what it is that Jesus is coming to bring and what it will mean for us to be at home with him? What are we looking for and hoping for? Similarly, when John the Baptist made this announcement and said Jesus is coming, the reason that people came to the river to get baptized and to repent of their sins is because they knew what it meant for God to come. They didn't want anything standing in the way between what he wanted to do and where they were. So it was easy to repent, get it all out. If it's going to stand between me and Jesus or me and the Messiah, I don't want it. Tear it out, level it out, so I can be ready when he's here. I've been thinking a lot about that. If I could give the church a gift, y'all, I think it would be clarity, an imagination for where it is that God intends to take us when he comes. What it is that he intends to bring and give to us when he comes. Because it will make the preparing all that much more enjoyable, peaceful, hopeful. Otherwise, it's like, you know, it's preparing for the health inspector or for an audit to be evaluated or assessed. And I think in some ways that's like the thing that keeps God pushed to certain spaces and us living the rest of our lives over here. It's because we don't know how to bring it all together. We don't know how to trust that what he really wants is to live life with me in my real life. 
The Bible tells these really important, beautiful, pointed stories about the way that Jesus comes, I think, in order to tell us something about who he is and what it means for him to come. In other words, the story that the Bible gives us, at least one of them, for the coming of God, is the Bible will say this, you know what it's like when God comes into your life? It's like what happens when a new mother receives her newborn for the first time. That's what God coming is like. And I can tell you from experience that at least in that moment, here's what happened to me. It suddenly did not matter how unprepared I was. All that I had done that made me ill-equipped to be this person's mother, or all of the ways in which I would inevitably fail him, the reality was I was his mom. And the joy and the love I felt of that fact just made everything else insignificant. We'll just figure it out. We'll get through it somehow. It was joy that came. And that joy and that love conquered fear. Similarly, when John the Baptist is standing in the River Jordan and Jesus shows up, when Jesus comes, and this is what I love about um, John, is that John had been, of course, forecasting the coming of Jesus and the Messiah for weeks now, telling people, he's coming, he's coming, and when he comes, his winnowing fork is going to be in his hands, and you better get ready, he's going to baptize you with fire, and it sounded, you know, intense in an Old Testament sort of way, and I suspect even more intense because, you know, the man was a wild-looking person with fire in his eyes. And so when you heard John the Baptist say, you know, Jesus is coming and his winnowing fork is in his hand, he's going to baptize you with fire, you thought, good. <laughs> I don't know what people thought. I don't know how I would feel. But you know how Jesus came? When he actually came, he showed up. He showed up at the Jordan and he stood in line and waited his turn to get baptized. And I hope he chatted with people in line as he waited. I suspect he did. Because he's a human person. And if you had been standing in line, he would have stood next to you and waited his turn with you. And then when it was his turn, he came down to the river. And when John tried to say, no, 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 we can't do this. This is too normal. You can't do this very normal thing with me. Jesus had to look at him and say, John, let me be here with you. Take hold of me, John. Why else did I come if you won't take hold of me here, this way? When he came after his resurrection, all of these people are, you know, talking about their rumors of resurrection. Crazy things have happened. The disciples are confused. Nobody knows what to think. And then Jesus comes and on the beach, while they're out on their fishing boats, and he appears to them, and his invitation is that they would just like come and have breakfast with him. What is more human than wanting to eat breakfast on the beach? 
it delights me to imagine that we have a God who understands how fun that is. Do you know what I mean? How good fish tastes over a fire and that the desire of his heart and soul is to sit there with you while you love the world that he made and you delight in it and in the people that he loves that nothing blesses and thrills him more than that than to see you fully alive, full of joy, full of love. And that what he comes, what he's going to do is throw off these garments of sadness and despair and in their place put a garment of praise so that you can be fully alive, fully the person he made you. What a gift. This has everything to do with how we think about beauty and art. It's one of the reasons that Christians get so weird about art is because we don't know how to feel about integration. We don't know how to feel about a God who's really and truly human. So, to use Isaiah's story, when J.K. Rowling writes Harry Potter and it's a masterpiece, all the Christians are huddled together wondering, I don't know, can we read about wizards? <laughs> Instead of being like, praise God. God, that's good. Is that good? That's good. Glory be to God. I remember when Kendrick Lamar's latest album came out, and I heard it for the first time. <coughs> Junk's good. You don't have to like him, it's fine. I'll still be your pastor. <laughs> and I remember thinking, can I tell people how much I love this album? cost me my ordination if they hear me listening to this we are preoccupied y'all and spending a lot of energy on stuff that's just costing us energy just costing us energy all of this fretting and hand-wringing over our politics, all of this fretting and hand-wringing over who listens to what and watches what and goes where, and it's all just a distraction. And please hear me, I'm not suggesting for one minute that you shouldn't care about your sanctification and living a life of holiness. It matters to me. But I wish to God that we would take the energy that we are expending on those things, worrying about wizards, and apply it to the love of our neighbor and to the care of each other and to this beautiful planet that God gave us. And that maybe if we expended a lot of energy in those places, then holiness would become an art, and everybody would want to put it on. You don't have to talk people into beautiful things. They want them by nature and by design because there is a beautiful God who calls to them from within those beautiful things. I want to leave you with a quote from a book called For the Life of the World. This book is beyond me and too hard for me to understand at a lot of points. It was written by an Orthodox priest. His name is Alexander Schmemann. 
and it's about the Eucharist, and it's about liturgy, and he writes this about those things. He says, once more, the joyful character of the Eucharistic gathering must be stressed. Eucharistic, communion, this gathering. The medieval emphasis on the cross, while not wrong, is one-sided. The liturgy is before everything else the joyous gathering of those who are to meet the risen Lord and to enter with him into the bridal chamber. And it is the joy of expectation and this expectation of joy that are expressed in singing and ritual, investments and in sensing, and that whole beauty of the liturgy which has so often been denounced as unnecessary and sinful. Unnecessary it is indeed. For we are beyond the categories of the necessary. Beauty is never necessary, functional, or useful. And when expecting someone whom we love, we put a beautiful tablecloth on the table and we decorate it with candles and flowers. We do all this not out of necessity, but out of love. And the church is love expectation and joy. It is heaven on earth according to our tradition. It is the joy of recovered childhood, that free, unconditioned, and disinterested joy which alone is capable of transforming the world. As long as Christians love the kingdom of God, they'll not only discuss it, they will not only learn about it, but they will represent it in art and in beauty. Your joy is a sacrament. Your laughter, a healing balm. The songs you sing, the poetry you write, the meals you cook, the friends you entertain, all of that joy will be caught up one day into heaven. And the glory of God will be made known through it. That's the story of our faith. He delights in us, in all of us. Amen. Holy Spirit, will you help us to prepare for Jesus in ways that are befitting of you, Lord? I pray, God, over us that you would teach us, Jesus, how to walk in holiness, how to live as people who are called, Lord, to holiness. And in this world, trying to make sense of it, looking for you. Will you teach us, Jesus, give us the wisdom of heaven, and above all, Lord, the joy of heaven, Jesus. Tear up, Lord, that which needs to be torn up and level and set right, Lord, the places in us that need to be set right as we look for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.